Section 9 of the Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 The Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll. Warships and Naval Battles. Part 1 Wooden Walls from Salamis to Trafalgar. Part 2 all these changes combine to enforce the wisdom of meeting an enemy in a widely spaced line where the strongest fighting ships were put forward and smaller vessels came up in the rear those ahead met the battleships at the head of the enemy's column and the lesser ones as they came up were paired off against those of their own size so that the battle became a series of equalized duels. Such was the theory of naval tactics in the 17th and 18th centuries, and so arose the term line of battleship, descriptive of such national craft as are shown on the opposite page. These fine old line of battleships were large and powerful before the 17th century ended, Thus, in the British Navy, when 1700 came in, there were eight, which had from 96 to 110 guns each, 53 others carrying more than 70 guns, and 23 more with more than 50 guns, all at the time regarded as fit for the line of battle, though a hundred years later nothing less than a 74 was so considered such were the grandly picturesque old vessels that won the day at gibraltar copenhagen and trafalgar and at many another spot where the whole horizon echoed to their thunderous broadsides but of them all there now remain only a few honored hulks in harbors or in few grand figureheads preserved in docks and museums each navy, however, had a greater number of smaller, more active vessels, known as frigates, corvettes, sloops of war, gun brigs, etc., which carried from twenty to forty-four guns, and were the eyes of the fleet, as one old strategist styled them. They answered to what we should now call cruisers, and often went on duty in distant parts of the world, or in war, or scouting about and supporting the main fleet. This class was especially cultivated by the United States, as soon as it began to make a regular navy, at the close of the Revolutionary War, and six frigates were built at our six navy yards during the last years of the last century, which were intended and proved to be separately superior to any single European frigate of the usual dimensions, in speed, maneuvering, and fighting power, in proportions to their weight of ordnance. Three of them, Constellation, Congress, and Chesapeake, mounted thirty-six guns, and three, United States, President, and Constitution, forty-four guns each, mainly twenty-four pounders and all gave so good an account of themselves as ships 
that the high compliment was paid us of their being carefully imitated by foreign naval constructors this is not a naval history so that i am not concerned to tell of all the glorious and inglorious work of the navies of europe in obtaining or holding or failing to get and keep trade routes open and territorial possessions intact in various parts of the world during the seventeenth and eighteenth and far into the nineteenth century there was no time when some nations were not fighting on the sea if not on land and much of the time all the maritime nations were hard at it turning their guns to-day on the allies of yesterday and fighting shoulder to shoulder with them the next season against some friend of the year before a few of the most famous battles ought to be spoken of however as illustrating the methods and development of naval warfare and because we now recognize that their consequences were far-reaching in the wars which broke out toward the close of the eighteenth century due to napoleon's ambition to rule the world great britain found herself engaged in a struggle not only with france but really with the whole world for the command of the seas that washed the western coast of europe the only sign of friendship to england from the baltic to gibraltar was in the doubtful neutrality of portugal england had to abandon the mediterranean and devote herself to facing the allied powers against her outside the gates of hercules as best she could in seventeen ninety seven she made a beginning by crushing a fleet of dutch ships off camperdown holland and a spanish fleet off cape st vincent but though both were great battles neither had any lasting effect and in spite of them napoleon planned his celebrated invasion of england for the following year supposing that by his expedition to egypt threatening england's east indian possessions he would draw away so much of the british navy that he and his allies can put an army across the english channel unhindered i need not say that his invasion of england never was attempted but for a time his fleet did hold command of the mediterranean a state of things to which an end was put by england's most famous naval hero horatio nelson a long series of brilliant exploits had given nelson fame and the vigorous accounts of them he used to send home helped his great popularity a large part of his service had been in american waters in seventeen ninety eight nelson was a rear admiral and was sent to the mediterranean after the french fleet which having convoyed napoleon's army to its landing at alexandria was ready for new operations it is characteristic of the slow and almost useless methods of gaining intelligence in those days that from early june to the end of july nelson searched for his flotilla and was unable to get more news of it than an occasional rumor that it had been at some place or another days or weeks before the french knew no more as to the movements of their pursuers yet the fleets were twice within a few miles of each other this was nelson's first independent command and his patience and nerves were nearly worn out by anxiety 
at last on the first day of august the english almost stumbled on the french at anchor in the bay of abokir among the mouths of the nile between alexandria and rosetta a shallow roadstead full of shoals and rocks for which nelson had neither chart nor pilot in the interior of this bay lay the napoleonic squadron under admiral bruys in such fancied security that a large part of the cruise was ashore and some of the ships unprepared for a battle when the british appeared it was anchored in line of battle however and consisted of thirteen ships on the line the central one being the flagship orient having a hundred and twenty guns and probably the largest and most complete warship then afloat on each side of her were the franklin and the tonant of eighty guns each and none of the others were greatly inferior the british had also thirteen ships but none was the equal of the best french and one of them did not engage in the attack at all knowing nothing of the harbor and aware that all his ships drew much water perhaps thirty feet nelson had to make a long and very cautious detour throwing the lead every moment and feeling his way in it was then late in the afternoon and half past six before the goliath leading the column got near enough to attract the french fire replying but not halting the goliath followed closely by the zealous and the orion made for the head of the line and then with a daring unrivalled for there was barely enough water to float their keels these ships slowly turned around the foremost french vessel and dropped their anchors in the rear of the enemy's line the other ships as they came up ranged alongside the front of the french and the deepening twilight resounded with such a roar of broadsides as never will be heard again in the darkness and smoke the english seventy four the bellerophone had engaged the monstrous orient and in short time had been crushed all her masts were swept out of her two hundred of her people were killed and wounded and she drifted out of action but nearly the same fate had by that time overtaken the french gourier for the theseus had coolly placed herself where she could rake the anchored ship and tear her to pieces the moment the bellerophone drifted off however her place was taken by two newly arrived frigates and the orient presently found herself the target of three ships which slowly but surely were cutting her to pieces in spite of her tremendous resistance her admiral had been killed on her deck where half her officers and men lay dead or wounded when it was suddenly seen that she was on fire and the whole battle was instinctively suspended to watch the magnificent spectacle save where some still poured in shot and shell to prevent the french crew from extinguishing the flames powerless either to save their ship or launch their boats the remnant of the orient's crew could only fling themselves into the water and trust to the mingled boats of friends and foes to pick them up the ships nearest slipped their cables and tried to edge away out of danger as the flames enveloped the towering masts 
burning with amazing fierceness in the tarred rigging and lighting up the desert for miles inland while the hull became a furnace suddenly at a quarter before ten a volcano-like explosion tore the glowing old battleship asunder a torrent of burning fragments was hurled aloft with how many dead heroes no one knows and double darkness closed over the appalling scene then the black waves were lighted anew by the flash of cannon and musketry and the battle went on until daylight before the last of the french vessels had been conquered while two of them had managed to steal away of the other eleven one had been burned and sunk three had gone ashore where one burned and the remainder had been crushed into surrendering the english did not lose a single vessel for even the dismantled bellerophon could float and their loss in men was far less than that of the french historians tell us that this victory was the grandest naval success on record nelson himself said that victory was too weak a term it was a catastrophe it put an end at once to napoleon's campaign in egypt and to all his designs against india it gave the command of the mediterranean to england emboldened turkey and russia to recover the ionian islands gave naples a chance to assert herself and aroused austria and russia to resist by armies napoleon's aggressions so that from this battle dates his downfall its influence soon reached the united states and caused it to break through its neutrality and begin upon the sea that naval war with france of which we hear very little nowadays but which gave to our own naval record such glorious incidents as truxton's battles in the constellation with le sergente and la vengeance and captain little's capture in the corvette boston of the french sloop of war le barceau nelson remained in the mediterranean for some years by no means idle and then did service of extraordinary value elsewhere as at the battle of copenhagen which in a single remarkable conflict put an end to a northern conspiracy against england and saved her a vast deal of trouble but his final service was the most momentous of all at any rate for the fortunes of great britain alone and this was the winning of the battle of trafalgar in eighteen o five napoleon had prepared for another grand invasion of england and with great skill had gathered a fleet of allied french and spanish vessels which was to protect and cooperate with the strong army he proposed to land along the kentish shores this fleet was commanded by admiral Villeneuve and assembled at cadiz where in october eighteen o five it was being watched by an english fleet commanded by nelson and collingwood consisting of thirty ships of the line twenty-seven of these were present when on the morning of the twenty-first the allies twenty-nine battleships strong came sailing out hoping to avoid battle if possible this nelson was resolved should not happen 
and dividing his forces into two columns he made at them in such a way as to strike their line then off cape trafalgar in the middle of its crescent the wind was very light and an hour or more elapsed before the heads of the line struck the enemy so that there was plenty of time to make every preparation and there was constant instruction by signalling from nelson's flagship victory then at the last moment when the first gun was ready to be fired there rose upon the signal halyards of the victory the message that received with ringing cheers has been an inspiration to patriots the world around ever since england expects every man will do his duty a few moments later collingwood and the royal sovereign and nelson in the victory were in the thick of the foreign fleet which awaited them in disorderly array but closed about these two bent upon destroying them if possible before any others could come up the fury of the duels that ensued where ships were mixed in disorder and sometimes three or four against one passes adequate description none perhaps fared worse than the belle isle a large english two-decker that was the first to reach the scene after the royal sovereign and to draw off some of the fire that threatened to pulverize collingwood's ship the wreckage and suffering on the other ships were almost as great the very first broadside of the royal sovereign taking the santa anna struck down four hundred out of the one thousand persons aboard and the sovereign herself soon lost every mast the santissima trinidada a spanish four-decker and the largest ship then afloat was reduced to a wreck and a dozen others lost a part or all of their masts as for the victory she was always in the thick of it receiving at one time the concentrated fire of seven hostile battleships it was not too much disabled to be manoeuvred her captain's aim was to engage directly with the french flagship Bucentaur, but she was closely attended by three other large ships and difficult to reach nevertheless the victory finally got across her stern and from a few yards distance poured into a broadside which sweeping the whole length of her interior dismounted twenty guns and killed and wounded four hundred men as she passed on returning the fire of the other vessels nearby she was closely followed by the temeraire the second english ship which had already become almost unmanageable and a lifting of the smoke showed her smashing the little french frigate the redoubtable which by and by was captured after almost every man had been killed and she was in sinking condition the astonishing resistance of this little vessel and the damage she did by soldiers with muskets crowded in her tops and firing down upon the decks of the english ships form one of the most noteworthy incidents of naval history and it is not too much to say that she inflicted upon great britain as great harm as all the rest of the allies put together for it was a musket ball from the mizzen-top of the redoubtable that struck down early in the action the great nelson himself he seemed to have had a feeling 
even before leaving England, that he would not survive this campaign, and knew his wound was mortal the instant it was received. He was carried below, and remained alive and conscious about three hours, eagerly listening to reports of the progress of the fight, and rejoicing at last in a knowledge of victory. His last words, murmured again and again, with his failing breath, seemed an answer to his signalled injunction, for they were, Thank God I have done my duty. Other men, writes Captain Mahan, have died in the hour of victory, but to no other has victory so singular and so signal stamped the fulfillment and completion of a great life's work. Finis coronat opus has of no man been more true than of Nelson. Results momentous and stupendous were to flow from the annihilation of all sea power except that of Great Britain, which was Nelson's great achievement. But his part was done when Trafalgar was fought, and his death, in the moment of completed success, has obtained for that superb victory an immortality of fame, which even its own grandeur could scarcely have ensured. No such fleet actions as this ever occurred in North American waters in the time of the old navy, though there was plenty of cruising and fighting up and down the coast and in the West Indies. The United States had made its new flag respected before the end of the 18th century, but it was done mainly in European waters, where that marvelous captain Paul Jones had been defying enemies to the point of rashness. Paul Jones was the first man to hoist our national ensign, that rattlesnake flag, on an American ship, and again the first to hoist the stars and stripes, and was the ranking officer of the Continental Navy. He records that in the Revolution he had twenty-three battles and solemn recounters by sea, made seventy cents in Britain and her colonies, took of her navy two ships of equal and two of far superior force, and so on. It is true that he alone, of his day, steadfastly refused to acknowledge England's supremacy of the seas, that the flag of the United States alone was never struck to Great Britain, except under force of honorable combat, and that on the ships commanded by Paul Jones it was never struck at all. Every Yankee schoolboy knows of the terrible fight of the crazy old sloop of war Bonhomme Richard against the Serapis, a new English fifty-gun frigate in the North Sea, in which a sinking and burning and shot-riddled vessel, able after the first broadside, to bring only three or four small guns into practice, conquered and captured her twice greater antagonist. It is not a story one can tell in a few words, but it was a deed that is regarded in naval annals as among the most extraordinary in the history of the world, and it won for the new republic a credit in Europe that was of vast benefit to it and all its wandering citizens. Great Britain, though humiliated, had 
had not been seriously hurt by the loss of two or three ships out of her six hundred, and she still tried to enforce against the rising naval power of the west side of the Atlantic the subservience which she received along its eastern shores. It took the form of asserting a right to stop and board any American vessel, government or private, and seize and impress into her own service any British subject found serving in the crew. This always met with protest and resistance, and at last became so galling that in 1812 the United States declared war against Great Britain's might rather than continue to submit to it. This might gradually overcame us, and British fleets sailed up and down our coasts unhindered, but not until the enemy had been surprised by many hotter knocks than they anticipated, and had learned one thing for certain, that while man for man the Yankees were equally good seamen and fighters, they were better shipbuilders, and could teach lessons in that art, which their enemies were not above learning and finally we won by sheer force of victories at sea. I have already spoken of the six frigates which were used in that war, as admittedly the best of their kind in the world, except the unlucky Chesapeake, which was rashly carried unprepared into the fatal action against the Shannon, where Lawrence lost his life, but won undying fame in the memory of his countrymen by his don't give up the ship. All did glorious work. Thus the United States under Decatur reduced to a wreck off Madeira and brought as a prize to New York the British 44-gun frigate Macedonian in October 1812 itself remained almost uninjured, a victory due to superior seamanship and gunnery. The same skill using a ship of superior sailing power, accounted largely for the splendid victory of the United States sloop-of-war Wasp, 18 guns, a week earlier, near Bermuda, in an encounter with the British sloop Frolic, 19 guns, where in three-quarters of an hour the Frolic was totally dismasted and reduced to a rolling wreck, with 90 killed or wounded out of a crew of 110, while the wasp's loss was only ten. A British seventy-four then came up and captured both the victor and her prize. But eighteen months later, a second wasp, by reason of her better gunnery, cut to pieces at different times two other ships with comparatively small injury to herself. Nor could the president have given so good an account of herself in her unfortunate encounter with the Belvedere and again, when chased and finally captured by the squadron led by the Endymion, had not her sailing qualities and gunnery been of so high an order, qualities which also distinguished the American fleets on Lake Erie and Lake Champlain. But the honors of that brilliant naval war belonged chiefly, after all, to the Constitution, old Ironsides as the people love to call her, which is enshrined in the history and hearts of the United States, as Nelson's victory is in those of Great Britain. The Constitution was the finest, 
perhaps of the United States frigates, and a favorite ship with commanders. Yet her fame began with her success in running away. Broke's British squadron chasing her three nights and two days, only to lose her after all. The winds were so light that she sent out her boats to help the sails urge her forward. It was only a few days after that, August 19, 1812, that Commodore Isaac Hull, cruising in search of the British vessel Guerrier, the same that had been captured from the French in the Battle of the Nile and again dismasted at Trafalgar, overhauled her off the coast of Newfoundland. The London newspapers had not only been sneering at the Constitution as a bundle of pine boards, sailing under a bit of striped bunting, but Captain Diacres had sent a boastful challenge to Hull to meet him and see what would happen. The vessels, though nominally of different rate, were actually in close equality, and both crews were eager for a fair fight. It was already well along in the afternoon, and the sea was rough, but Hull would not reply to the enemy's fire until he was within pistol-shot, then his broadside opened. Fifteen minutes after the contest began, to quote Lossing's lively account, the mizzenmast of the Guerrier was shot away, her main-yard was in slings, and her hull, spars, sails, and rigging were torn to pieces. By a skilful movement, the Constitution now fell foul of her foe, her bowsprit running into the labored quarter of her antagonist. The cabin of the Constitution was set on fire by the explosion of the forward guns of the Guerrier, but the flames were soon extinguished. Both parties attempted to board, while the roar of the great guns was terrific. The sea was rolling heavily and would not permit a safe passage from one vessel to the other. At length the Constitution became disentangled and shot ahead of the Guerrier, where the mainmast of the latter, shattered into weakness, fell into the sea. The Guerrier shivered and shorn, rolled like a log in the trough of the billows. Hull sent his compliments to Captain Dacres, and inquired whether he had struck his flag. Dacres, who was a jolly tar, looking up and down at the stumps of his masts, coolly and dryly replied, "'Well, I don't know. Our mizzenmast is gone. Our mainmast is gone. Upon the whole you may say we have struck our flag.' Too completely wrecked, to be of any further use. The historic old ship was set on fire and blown up, and so ended her pride and her story. Hull lost only fourteen men killed and wounded, while the British lost seventy dead and all the survivors prisoners. This calamity, on the heels of similar successes elsewhere for the bit of striped bunting, spread consternation throughout Great Britain, not only but in the other European monarchies, for it presaged the rise of a new power to be reckoned with, where novel and superior instruments and methods of warfare opposed uncalculated forces to the old regime. This conviction was enforced upon Europe anew only four months later, by the Constitution overtaking 
and crushing in west indian waters the thirty-eight gun frigate java which also was burned to the water's edge because the wreck was not worth saving and again the british loss was many times greater than the american captain william bainbridge who had distinguished himself in the mediterranean was her commander the ports on the upper deck aft were roughly cut to meet the emergency the sailors in the rigging threw water from buckets upon the sails to make them hold better the faint breeze and below hose-pipe was used to the same purpose during the three days chase boats were sent out to tow and kedge anchors were used to warp the ship forward various successes marked her career for the next two years until under the command of captain charles stewart she had her memorable adventure off madeira in which she engaged with the two british ships cyan thirty-six guns and levant eighteen guns and captured both with a loss of only three men killed and twelve wounded stewart set sail with his prizes and prisoners for porto praia whence he proposed sending his prisoners to new york in a captured merchantman reaching there on march tenth he was next day busy at these arrangements when the topsails of several men of war were seen entering the harbor through the prevailing fog having no trust that if these were british their commanders would respect the courtesies of a weak neutral port stuart felt that his only chance was to try to run away in the fog and made immediate preparations to do so sending word to the levant and cyan to follow being discovered by the strangers three large british frigates at the outlet of the harbor their escape immediately became a question of seamanship and sailing here the americans showed their superiority and effectually dodging both ships and the cannon-balls of the pursuers the levant got back under the protection of the guns of the fort at porto praia while the constitution and levant fairly outsailed the frigates and escaped in eighteen thirty brave old ironsides was condemned as worn out and ordered to be sold but as a similar sad fate overtaking the fighting temeraire had been made the occasion of an immortal painting by turner and so perhaps had caused nelson's still more famous battleship victory to be preserved in the harbor of portsmouth as a shrine of naval inspiration so the obloquy that menaced the constitution now fired the heart of a young poet to write a passionate appeal to patriotism who does not know dr holmes ringing stanzas oh better that her shattered hulk should sink beneath the wave her thunders shook the mighty deep and there should be her grave nailed to the mast her holy flag set every threadbare sail and give her to the god of storms the lightning and the gale the country caught the spirit and such a cry of protest went up that the vandalism was stayed 
and old ironsides was again repaired hardly anything but her ornaments was now left of the original structure and took several cruises one of which was in carrying wheat to famine-stricken ireland later she was used as a school-ship and finally became worthless even for that and in eighteen ninety five the question arose whether she should be broken up at the brooklyn navy yard or towed around to portsmouth new hampshire and there laid up in a line with the macedonian and a few other ancient hulks that were rotting quietly away in honourable age and have now wholly disappeared sentiment dictated the latter course and with a crew aboard prepared to take to their boats at a moment's notice the leaking and crazy old warrior stately even yet and sadly saluted by every fort and vessel she passed crept around to her last berth at kittery point she's the last and the most glorious representative of the old navy end of section nine